Welcome to Proverbs 910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth. We're your hosts and co-founders of Proverbs 910 Ministries, Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. Today, we're continuing in our series on the best sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount. We left off last time by finishing with Matthew 5, verse 6, the middle of the Beatitudes. So we're going to pick up in the next Beatitude of verse 7. But before we do that, Chris, maybe we should review just a few things we said last time about the Beatitudes that are important in order to understand them correctly. Yeah, that's a good idea. So the first thing I would have to say is I want to remind people that Jesus is speaking to believers. Right. And in light of that, the Beatitudes are not a list telling unbelievers how to get into heaven. The Beatitudes should be looked at in regards to our relationship with God. Exactly. All right. So let's move on to verse 7. Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In light of what God has done for us by lavishing his great mercy upon us, we should be merciful to others. The more and more we realize the extent that God was merciful to us should make us more and more merciful to others. And I do fail at that, but that's how it should work. Definitely. In Luke 7, 41 to 49, Jesus tells a parable about mercy. He says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them loved him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to them, Jesus, you have judged rightly. But the second half of this beatitude sounds like it's saying, if you don't show mercy to others, you won't be shown mercy. And some people ask if that means that you can lose your salvation by not forgiving someone else. But the answer to that is a big no. Saved is a forever state. Yes, it is. And as we see that in John 10, where Jesus tells us that his sheep hear his voice and they were given to him by the Father, and he will never lose any of them out of his hand. We need to remember here that in the Beatitudes, we're talking about life in the kingdom, and the Beatitudes are about believers. And in Matthew 18, 23 to 35, Jesus tells a parable to further answer Peter's question of, how often do I have to forgive my brother who sins against me? And the answer was not seven times, but 77 times, meaning every single time. (laughs) (laughs) And the parable ends with these words about the man who was forgiven by his master, but would not forgive his fellow servant. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should repay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Anyone who breaks one part of God's law, even once, is deserving of our perfectly holy God's wrath. Therefore, if you've been shown his mercy, remember that and treat others with the same type of mercy that you've been shown. Right. Okay, verse 8 of Matthew 5 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That doesn't mean that those who live a totally sinless life, totally pure in heart, never even thinking a bad thing about anybody. I hope not. Yeah, that would put us in trouble. Because that's impossible until after Jesus comes back. Once again, the Beatitudes are about believers. So the understanding of this is that believers have been made right with God and will someday be pure in heart like their Savior. But even now... 
we have that status because we're clothed in Christ's perfect robe of righteousness. But let's talk a minute about the they will see God part of this. At first glance, that little statement might not seem like much, but there's really a lot more to it. And people ask, won't everyone see God, both the saved and the unsaved, when Jesus comes back? There's a lot packed into that statement. While we're here on earth, being pure in heart means that we're looking to glorify God, we're striving to honor and obey Him in all that we do. Our loyalty is not divided. We belong to God, not to the world. Therefore, we work to do God's bidding, not the world's. And the reason this helps us to see God is because when we're distracted by the world, sin and Satan, it can be hard for us to see God. There's so much crap going on in us, it interferes and distracts us from our devotion to God. But when we are living in a manner worthy of being called the children of God, it opens our eyes to the things of God. Even when we mess up in sin and don't glorify God in something, and we guarantee that definitely will happen to you, when we're wholly devoted to God and keeping our focus on Him, we can better see Him working in our lives and in our sanctification. Absolutely. But as with all the Beatitudes, there's a bigger picture for believers. Right now, believers see God in a mirror dimly, according to 1 Corinthians 13. We only partially know what God is like, the part that he's revealed to us. But that same passage says that when the perfect comes, meaning Jesus, our partial view will pass away and we will see God fully. When Jesus comes in all his fullness and we see him face to face that way, we will know God fully. And Paul finishes up this part of that passage by saying, just as we are fully known. And also for the present time, 1 John 3, 2 says, Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. Believers are getting to know God better and better, and they're being transformed to be more and more like Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. An unbeliever isn't. And to answer the question, won't everyone see God, even the wicked? Romans 14.11 and Philippians 2.10 do say that when Jesus comes back, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But does that mean the wicked will see God the Father? I'd start by saying in 1 John 3.6 it says, No one who sins, meaning without repenting or in other words an unbeliever, has seen him or knows him. That goes right along with what you just said, Rose. And also, if we look back at Exodus 33, God told Moses, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then God hid him in the cleft of the rock, and in Exodus 33:23, we're told God went on to say, Then I'll take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, without Jesus as our mediator, no one can see God fully and live. There's no way they could ever know him fully either because they've never understood what kind of love God has for his people. Will they see God, meaning the wicked? Yes. Revelation 20, 11 to 12 says, And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. It goes on to say, I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. Some commentators say, the throne has both God the Father and Jesus sitting at his right hand on it. There's good reason to believe that this is Jesus on the throne from lots of scripture. But regardless, the unbelievers, here called the dead, 
will see him because they will be standing before that throne in judgment. It's going to be terrifying for them. Makes my blood run cold. Okay, moving on to the next beatitude. Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This isn't talking about everyone who tries to end strife here on earth, whether between nations or individuals. It's not Christians denying what the Bible says in order to be tolerant or not being an easygoing person or someone who puts up with false doctrine just to keep the peace at any price. Peacemakers are those who have peace with God through Jesus. In Acts 10.36, the gospel message itself is called the good news of peace. Peacemakers not only have this peace with God, because of it, they're a new creature who has the ability to, as far as possible, live at peace with everyone, as it says in Romans 12. And again, this is about kingdom life. And we're called over and over again in the Bible to live at peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Like you already said, though, that doesn't mean compromising the truth of the gospel at all. False teachers are no different than the false prophets in the Old Testament who, according to Jeremiah, lied to the people and said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. That's a great analogy. We need to also say that there's an aspect in which spreading the gospel makes you a peacemaker. For those who hear and believe have peace with God. And that's something every believer is supposed to do. And Chris, just to finish up this beatitude, Believers are called sons and daughters of God in many places in Scripture. Yeah, they are. That's right. So let's go on a little bit further in Matthew to Matthew 5.10. It's our next beatitude and it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, Rose, there are certain things that you and I say over and over and over and over again. And to counter what the prosperity gospel people tell their listeners all the time, we are always saying Christians aren't promised prosperity. They're promised persecution over and over again in the Bible. And we always say that because it's the truth. It is, absolutely. (laughs) The world hates Jesus. Therefore, as his followers, it will hate us too. He told us that plainly. Absolutely. And Paul sums up the idea of this verse beautifully in Romans 8, 36 to 39, which says, As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we will be with him. Amen. Can't be separated. And that's the last beatitude. These are attributes of believers they already possess in some measure and that should become more and more evident as they're sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And the next two verses are very much like the last beatitude and actually start out like a beatitude, yet they're not within the bracketed portion like we talked about. And those verses say, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they have persecuted the prophets who were before you. Exactly. Notice there's a change of wording here from blessed are those or blessed are the. Jesus instead says here, blessed are you. 
Some commentators believe Jesus is directing these two verses in 11 and 12 directly at the apostles because he mentions the prophets. They get this from Ephesians 2.20 which says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. However, it's more likely that Jesus is just bringing this home to roost here. In other words, he's now personalizing it so that each of those listening takes this sermon to heart. He's making it clear, I'm talking to you. I think that makes much more sense. The prophets of the Old Testament were persecuted. Why? Because they spoke the unpopular truth, God's truth. People throughout all times in history want to hear what their itching ears want to hear and not the tough truths that are in Scripture. Persecution comes from preaching God's word. It came to the true prophets of the Old Testament, it came to the apostles, and it will come to all believers who do the same. And Jesus is indeed preparing them to hear some hard stuff in this sermon. I agree totally with what you just said, Rose. Let's finish up today with a few more verses from Matthew 5. Verse 13 and 14 say, You are the salt of the earth. If salt has lost its taste, how can saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Being the salt of the earth is not something believers are supposed to strive to be. We're told in this passage that believers are the salt of the earth, just like we already have the attributes described in the Beatitudes. Right. So let's talk about what this isn't. A salt of the earth person is not a moral farmer who works hard and lives in Iowa. <laughs> no, it's not. Well, that, that's what comes to mind when I hear salt of the earth person. It's something that everyone who is truly a believer already is. Salt as a preservative needs to be rubbed into meat to preserve it. It needs to get into a wound to heal it. We can't keep ourselves locked away. We have to be in the world, still not being of it, but being in it. Right. And salt is not sugar. I love that. Uh, salt That's is great. not sugar. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> That's so brilliant. It was brilliant. Christians are not to be accommodating to the world in any way that compromises the Bible. The world is not good. It was created good, but since the fall, the world is full of sin, corruption, rot, and it needs redemption. Therefore, just by living in the world in a holy manner, which Jesus calls us to do, Christians will be irritating to unbelievers. Second Corinthians... Some more than others. Some more than others, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 2, 14-17 says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphant procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance of death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. The gospel message is offensive. We talk about this in length in our book, No Half-Truths Allowed. Paul realizes this when he confronts those who still wanted the law followed. We're told it's a stumbling block and folly to those who aren't being saved. The world will hate us because we're Christians. John 15, 18 to 21 says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. This is Jesus talking. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. 
That is why the world hates you. Notice that it doesn't say the world hates us because of anything we did. We know that Christians do act heinously at times, causing hatred legitimately, but we don't even have to do that in order for the world to hate us. Absolutely. We are the stench of death to the unsaved. Yep. Are you sugar in the world? Are you an upstanding citizen doing good deeds, morally upstanding, but never willing to present the gospel, at least not in a way that would offend anyone? Are you afraid to mention that all humans are sinful when compared with their perfectly holy creator and therefore everyone needs a savior? If so, maybe you should try being salt. This doesn't mean that you run home and you tell your neighbors they're sinners as soon as you get in the door. But if you're never getting around to that conversation with certain people, then... Yeah, and this goes for churches too. Helping the poor, serving the community, doing acts of kindness are all good. But without the gospel message included, you're taking care of the immediate but doing nothing about the eternity. You're no better than many of the secular organizations out there. Absolutely. This verse about salt is very similar to Mark 9.50 where Jesus uses it right after talking about hell. The world may not like the message, but they need to hear it. Salt that isn't like salt because it's lost its flavor, Jesus calls useless. It's like a tree that bears no fruit. And since Christians are known by their fruit, if we're not salty, we may need to examine ourselves to see if we're actually in the faith. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Okay, so let's finish with verses 14 to 16. 14 to 16 of Matthew 5 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are to be the light of the world. The intent of this verse is active. It's what we do. These verses echo Isaiah chapter 60. The Israelites were supposed to live in the promised land as a holy and blessed nation, thereby drawing the pagan nations to them. They did the exact opposite. Yeah, they did. But we're called to take the light into the nations. The message about what Jesus has done is the light, and we're to shine forth that light to the world. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And John defines light as life. It's our job as Christians to spread the gospel to those in our circles and spheres of influence. It's not really a job, Chris. It's a privilege. It is, absolutely. Jesus uses the same verse about light in the gospels of Mark and Luke right after the parable about the seed thrown on different soils. We're to shine the light, in other words, the seed of the gospel, onto an unbelieving world so that the regenerated, gospel-ready hearts hear it and respond to the gospel message. We don't know whose heart the Holy Spirit has regenerated. It's not our job to worry about that. It's our job to be faithful with spreading the gospel because that's what we're told to do. The Word of God is the light that penetrates eyes that are enabled by the Holy Spirit to see. Living a good life, doing good deeds in front of the world to try to show them the gospel, it's not enough. We have to speak the gospel message. We do. And although the words good deeds or good works are used here depending on your Bible translation, it's the preaching and teaching of the word that Jesus was actually talking about. 
We know that because he uses the same word here that's used throughout other areas of the New Testament that describe work or toil and as an effort or occupation in the ministry of the word. And we get that from Strong's Concordance of the Bible. And this is for every believer, not just for those who are preachers or Bible study teachers or who went to seminary. Every believer should get to know scripture well enough to teach others and spread the gospel. Amen to that. And that's all we have time for today. Join us next week as we continue in our Sermon on the Mount series. If you have any questions or comments about today's episode, please leave them on any of our social media platforms or whatever podcast platform you're listening on today. And you can always go to our website, Proverbs910Ministries.com. Have a blessed day, everyone.